0: Father, thank you so much for for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth and the beauty and the glory of of you, of you yourself that we see revealed in your word. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful gift that it is and for all uh, of those who sacrificed before us to to bring it to us. Um, Lord, may we receive it. May our hearts be open to receive your word, uh, that it would change, that it would transform, that it would accomplish the purposes for which you have sent it. Um, as you have promised that it will. Um, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for your spirit here with us to reveal uh, Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I, uh, how many of you guys were able to uh, catch Taylor Swift uh, winning the Super Bowl this <laughs> To. However many weeks ago, I was over at Joy's. She won. Just accept it. Taylor Swift won. She's now in charge of the NBA, NFL, uh, and the NBA, too, soon, probably. I was over at Joy's. Um, our friend Joy had us over. We had chili. We had a lot of dogs. We watched uh, We watched the game. Uh, they had a commercial. They had the thing with the foot washing. I didn't even know that, actually. I had, I had planned on speaking on this passage, and Stephanie mentioned it to me. This week, and she showed me the commercial on YouTube, and uh, it's got the, he gets us. You guys, does everybody see this? All right, there's a commercial. Uh, it's one of these, um, these new ad campaign for uh, sort of like a kind of easing Jesus back into the national consciousness, I guess, is the, is the idea, is the goal. Uh, weirdly, the, the folks on my Instagram and, and Twitter feed have been kind of divided over how, how they feel about it. Christians, some of them are a little grumpy. They're like, no, it's not. That's not the gospel, and some are like, oh, "That was great." Um, I liked it, so whatever. Uh, anyway, but I just thought I'd mention it because uh, you know I needed an icebreaker. Uh, this this passage, though, we're gonna we're gonna dig into it a little bit, um, and I'll start by saying this: that John, I, I love John. You know, we, we're, we're taking a break from from Colossians. Uh, Ken, Ken was just like, you know, something out of the Bible. Just preach something, and so I was like, great. So I, I went to John, uh, because I, I've spent a lot of time in this in this book, and particularly in this last kind of chapter, middle of chapter 12 through chapter 17. It's called the Last Supper Discourse. And it's, it's basically the longest section of Jesus speaking in any of the Gospels. Uh, and John is an interesting Gospel because he doesn't have... He doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount, like you'll get in Matthew and in Luke. He doesn't have the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't have any parables. There's not a single parable in the book of John, because for John, Jesus' whole life was a parable. So for my English nerds out there, for y'all English majors, um, when you're looking at John, you can, you can just read each story as being both a thing that happened, which is exactly how John presents it to be, but also as being symbolic. So you have these stories like you 've got Mary and martha and it 's just a very mundane thing. these two sisters, Jesus is there, and one of them 's mad at the other one for not helping to fix the food and and yet it 's also a parable in itself, the story and the same thing is true here of um, of this this place in the last Supper. Um, Judas is mentioned, uh, but Peter is kind of the focus of this, and Peter again is the focus over here in chapter fourteen in between where Dan kind of took a break, if you read the rest of that, Jesus basically predicts, lines out what's about to happen. The he told them like blatantly over and over, I'm just going to go die. And they just couldn't wrap their minds around it. They couldn't see it uh, until it happened. And um, he also predicted that Judas would betray him, and he did. And Judas left, and then, uh, and then he predicts to Peter uh, that Peter would deny him three times, not once, but three times. Um, and Peter also was like, no, absolutely not. not going to do it. I'll die for you. Um, but God is so gracious. He knows He knows our weaknesses. And so before before that, let me let me bounce back to the beginning of chapter 13 here. Um, to set the stage, these guys are at Passover, at the at the Passover festival, at the Cedar Meal. They're together in an upper room of a house of someone they don't know. We learn from one of the other, I think Mark. Um, and they are they're having the meal together and the foot washing thing is it's fun it's cool it's intimate it's weird we kind of if you've been in church for a while you've probably heard at least a couple of sermons about foot washing and what it might mean um there was a servant typically who would have done this um it's a it's a pretty menial job and particularly in the in the ancient near east uh, even today actually uh It's just feet are gross. Remember when that guy like threw a sandal at at George W. Bush and it was just like this huge outrage for those guys because it's just like the the ultimate insult. Um, And I think we don't really quite get that, but it just the ultimate, ultimate insult. And so for the disciples who are just like 12 bros who've been hanging out for three years and, and are still kind of in that place where they're jockeying for like position and, you know, there was the moment where James and John sent their mom to make a play for them, and then the other guys got really mad at them, and everybody's kind of like, who's in charge here, what's happening? Obviously, Jesus is in charge, but who's, like, second, you know? And so Jesus, no one's washed anybody's feet. No one's done the thing. And so Jesus, John, John takes, makes a point when he tells this story to say that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Um, it's such a beautiful thing. You see this in, in all of the Gospels, but, but you'll, you'll see it in John over and over, where Jesus' words and his actions, just there's this, there's this uh, it, uh, seeming discontinuity. It's just he, he says things like, I am the bread of life, I am you know, the way, and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And yet he, 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 he talks like, like a crazy person, like a grandiose megalomaniac. It's what we would think if anyone else said these things. And yet he doesn't act like that. He acts with complete humility and gentleness. Um, he acts like, like the real deal. And, and it's, his, it's not only his words, but it's the actions that accompany those words that really um, give evidence, give some of the strongest evidence for the truth of who he is. Um, because there are plenty of people who say grandiose things, but they don't, they don't behave like Jesus behaved. They're not, they're not humble. And there are plenty of humble, good, holy people that, that we can see throughout many different religious traditions, but they don't speak like Jesus spoke. They say, I'm, you know, it's not me, I'm, I'm pointing you to, a, to, to God, I'm pointing you to something higher. Uh, but Jesus would, would constantly just be like, no, I'm pointing you to me, I'm pointing you to myself. And so he, he does this thing for his disciples. He kneels, he wraps it, he takes off his outer garment, he wraps a towel around his waist, he, he adopts the posture of a servant, um, which is exactly what Paul says that, uh, in, in the book of Philippians, that, uh, chapter 4, that he did. He said that he was in very nature God, and yet he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped onto, but he emptied himself and he took the nature of a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient uh, even unto death. And so Jesus, he wraps, he he comes around, he's doing this thing. He's, it's a parable. Obviously, it's weird. The disciples don't know what's happening. Everybody's, you know, whoever. They're, now they're all regretting probably that they weren't the one to wash feet. And uh, he gets to Peter, and Peter is just like, "You can't do it. I just can't let you do this." Um, and we love Peter because he's just, he just, he says it. I, lo- I love him. I freaking love him. Um, and he just, he's constantly like, kind of sticking his foot in his mouth, and yet he's also just he's just there. You know, there's the story about how John and Peter are running after the resurrection. They, They go to the tomb and John's like, I outran him. But then I stopped. I got to the entrance and I stopped. And Peter, like, by the time he got there, he just went all the way in. He went into the tomb and he was always the first one. You know, they're on the boat. Somebody's like, I think that's Jesus. And Peter like jumps in the water and swims to shore, you know? So here's Peter and he's, and he says, look, you can't do it. You can't, I can't let you do this. And, uh, Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And he said, oh, never mind. Dump the whole bucket on my head. Let's go. And Jesus was like, slow down, tiger. You don't need that. And um, he, said, he said this. A person who has had a bath, a person who's been washed, doesn't need to be washed again. He's clean. But his feet, your feet get a little dirty. You're walking down the road of life. Your feet get a little dusty. Uh, and he said, and you are all clean, though not every one of you, referring to Judas, um, When he finishes, he put his clothes on. Dan didn't read this part. And he returned to his place, and he said, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the only measure of greatness in the kingdom of God. This is the only measure of if you're doing it right, is if you're following Jesus. How closely are you walking in the footsteps of Jesus? Um, it, it has nothing to do with giftings. It has, in fact, just a, the next chapter, Jesus says casually, you guys are going to do even greater miracles than I'm doing, um, if you, whoever, whoever believes in me will do the same works I've been doing, and even greater works than these. And yet, here he makes it clear that you won't, you're not greater than me just for doing miracles. You, your, your highest aspiration is to be great like me by humbling yourself and by being a servant. Excuse me. There's a... Um, there's another story earlier in John that I think kind of sheds some light. Maybe it, it, it teaches a similar thing to the the... The parable, we'll call it a parable, of the foot washing. Um, again, literally happened, also symbolic. Um, so, Jesus' best buddy, Lazarus, very, very dear friend, not one of the disciples, uh, Mary and Martha's brother, dies. takes Jesus a while to get there. By the time he gets there, he's dead. Uh, Jesus has a couple of conversations with Martha and with Mary, and then he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, like well, yells, Angrily, it's, it's a great story. It's epic. You should just read read the Book of John. Let's go. Go home and read it. And he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, and and Lazarus <laughs> comes out of the tomb, bound, hand and feet, in grave clothes, like like a mummy. Only his like feet are together, probably, so he's hopping, I think. And it's just a wild, wild image. They pull the stone away. Martha's like, "It's been four days. There's going to be a smell." He's like, "Let's go. You believe in me." And then he does it, and Lazarus hops out just hops out of the tomb, wrapped in in grave clothes. And then Jesus says to the people who are standing there, let him go and take off the grave clothes. It's a similar picture to this. Jesus, only Jesus, is qualified to give you a bath. Only the blood of Christ can wash away your sins. Um, But as you walk down the road of life, your feet get a little dusty. And he has commanded us to wash each other's feet. Jesus and only Jesus can call a dead man out of a tomb. But all of us are qualified to help unwind the grave clothes that may still be remaining from the the former life that you once lived because all of us have been there. All of us uh, were once dead and have, have been given new life in Christ. And so both of these describe a posture, a, a, a way of, of the church dealing with itself, with each other, that is very humble and that is very gentle. Imagine someone who's been dead and had the grave clothes taken off, then assisting someone else. He's going to be, like, really gentle, you know? Um, whatever procedure the doctor is doing on you, if that doctor has had that procedure done on him or her, it's probably going to be a little more gentle, you know? Whatever... Um, whatever dust you may happen to catch on your brother or sister's feet, um, you yourself know that, that you have had to have your own feet washed in, in times past and will again. And so you can do that with humility, and you can do that with gentleness. And uh, the, the passage that was read earlier in 1 uh, in John comes to mind on that note that Joy read that... Um, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, we see, maybe in that, a process that confession, both to God and to each other, um, as is appropriate. We don't, we don't believe that you have to go to a priest to speak to the Father. You can, you can pray directly to God, as, as the Bible teaches us. Uh, and yet it says in in James, for instance, uh, confess your faults to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. And there's, a, there's a place in which, uh, a time in which you need to find someone else and you need to confess and you need to say, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I've got a thing. I need to bring it into the light. I need to be brought out. Of, I've got the old grave still clinging to me. I've got like a piece of toilet paper stuck on your shoes. You want to exit the bathroom stall. Uh, you need to to go to someone and say, "I'm just, I'm, I need, I need help." And when we do that, the role of the person is not to say, "Great, I absolve you." The role is to say, "He is faithful and just. He forgives of our sins, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness." And maybe we can break that down into almost a two-step process. There's justification and there's sanctification, which are Uh, multi-syllable words for just some actually pretty simple theological ideas. The justification means that I uh, have been made right. The wages of sin is death. The the price, the, the penalty that sin deserves is death, and the death penalty has been paid by someone else. God doesn't need two penalties for the same sin, and so I can go before God with confidence knowing that Um, I don't have to plead with him. I don't have to beg him. I don't have to offer him anything in addition to the death penalty that Christ already paid on my behalf. I I can have full confidence and full assurance that my sins have been paid for. Um, But also, I can know that I don't have to keep going every day back, confessing the same sin over and over with no hope of ever changing because by his spirit, he sanctifies us. Sanctifies means... Uh, to begin to set us apart, to begin to call us out of death into life, to begin to call us out of darkness and into light. And that that sanctification is not necessarily a one-and-done thing. Coming to life is a one-and-done thing. Jesus telling Lazarus to get out of the grave, he was dead and then he was alive. There's no more, there's no like half-dead, there's no partly dead, it's not a princess bride kind of thing. There's just dead, you're dead or you're not. Um, and yet, the, the sanctification, the process after that is a it's a step-by-step process. In fact, it's a, it's a lifelong process, and God knows what he has planned for each person that's here, and you can have confidence that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. However old you are, however much time you have left, God knows how much time you have left. One of the things that he is doing in the time that you have left is he is finishing the sanctification process that he began in you. He is uh, using you as well to contribute to the sanctification of your brothers and your sisters. We need each other and so um, so we see we see Peter here kind of maybe slowly getting it. We see again though at the at the last at the last uh let's let's skip down to uh, the end of chapter 13 here Jesus tells them he again that he's going away and he gives them this new command love one another as i have loved you so you must love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another it's 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 not a new command to love that's actually pretty like universally it's like the one thing that all our religions seem to agree on like love that and don't have sex before marriage. Um, that's that's all, like, that, pick your religion. That's all the traditional religions say it, so bad news, L.A. Um, but the, the command to love is not a new one. The command to love as Christ has loved us is a new one. That's a, that's a whole different deal. Um, and this is classic Jesus right here. He said, you've heard it said, you know, don't murder, but just wait. It gets worse. If you're angry with your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. He, he's, he's constantly doing that. And here he, do, he does, he again, gives us a seemingly impossible task. He says, don't just love. Love as I have loved. Love as I have loved. And, and he's predicting what he's about to do. He's showing them the full extent of his love, is what, is what John says. At the, very end of the, or at the very beginning of chapter 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Some translations say he loved them to the last. Some translations say he showed them the full extent of his love. Um, So that's the call to us, that we would love as Christ has loved, that we would love even to the point of, of laying down our own interests, our own selfishness, our own priorities, and even our own lives for our brothers and sisters. I wanted to include the first few verses in John chapter 14 because John 14 begins a seemingly new idea. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I mean, it's like a classic. Everybody knows that verse. But I think it becomes more poignant when you look at the last verse in chapter 13. Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus, before he gives this amazing, hopeful promise, um, that, that he's going to the Father, that he's coming back for us, that you don't got to let your heart be, be troubled. He gives Peter the like literal worst news that anyone has. He, leave it to Jesus. To call, at first he called Peter Satan a few like chapters back, but this has got to be worse. This has got to be the worst thing that Jesus ever said or anyone ever said to Peter. Uh, I'm sure that these words hit him like a sledgehammer. Um, Peter, the, the leader of the disciples, um, the de facto leader, the one who is, is, is constantly edging his way to the front, the one who's constantly willing to go further than anyone else, the one who here is pledging his loyalty to Jesus even unto death, is being told by Jesus, whom he loves so much, you're going to disown me like three times b- before morning. And just what horrible, awful, terrible news. And then right after that to say, do not let your hearts be troubled. Kind of adds some weight to that, doesn't it? Um, in the same way that we see a parable, some symbolism in the, in the story of the foot washing or in the story of Lazarus coming from the grave and the story of Mary and Martha and the way the two of them interact with Jesus, we see a parable in the... In the way that Jesus uh, interacts with both Judas and with Peter, Um, Judas also betrayed Jesus. Judas also was there having his feet washed. Judas also took the bread and the, the cup of wine with all the other 11 disciples. Judas had seen all of the miracles, and Judas, for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't really give us his thoughts. You know, people have had different theories as to what was motivating him, but Judas, he betrays him. He goes and he finds the Pharisees, and he said, look, you're trying to get him alone. I can make that happen. I can get him in a quiet spot where you can go arrest him, and the crowds won't be there to cause a riot. And he does it, and he gets paid. And um, it doesn't work out the way Judas apparently anticipated, or maybe it does, and then he just Still realizes the the weight of what he has done. He goes back. He tries to give the money back. Uh, they're like, yeah, that's blood money, bud. It's on you. Um, classic Pharisees, right there. And then, and then he throws the money down in the in the temple, and he runs out, and he goes, and he hangs himself, or he jumps off a cliff, or I don't. Something happens. His guts go everywhere. It's very bad. It's weird. Weird story. And then they use the money to just buy the field where he committed suicide, because. It was blood money. What were they going to do with it? And so that was the end of Judas' story. Peter, um, he didn't get paid, which in some ways makes Judas smarter, at least, I guess. I don't know. What was Peter doing? He, he does the same thing. He, he betrays Jesus. He, he betrays him three times. He betrays him with an oath the third time to a servant girl, um, calls down curses on himself, if he's ever heard of this guy Jesus, if he knew anything about him. I don't know him. I'm not one of these guys. And uh, when the rooster crowed after that third time, the the Bible tells us that he went out and he wept bitterly. Um, But unlike Judas, Peter, he came back. I guess, I don't know, maybe that's the difference. Maybe that's the only difference, actually. Um, Ken has been kind of harping on this concept of not harp. That a, I didn't mean it, to no. Ken has been, and I love it. I love it. The the long obedience in the same direction. Eugene Peterson stole it from Nietzsche, weirdly. And uh, but it's it's such a beautiful concept, and it really is. It, it really is just the heart of what it means to be a mature Christian. You see it all throughout Scripture. The difference between an immature Christian, an immature believer, and a mature believer is don't quit. Don't give up. That's the, whole, that's the whole secret. Stop quitting all the time. Don't give up. Come back. Um, we see it in uh, so many places. James, I'll quote James. He said, uh, let patience have its perfect work. He said, you need, you need patience. Let patience have its finished work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Paul uses the word endurance. He uses the word <laughs> Perseverance. Uh, it all just amounts to don't quit, stop quitting, come back, keep believing, keep coming back, keep finding the the grace that is offered to you. I think this uh, the the reason I wanted to to kind of get at this this passage is it it gets at something that we you know we've it's it's been on my mind for a long time. You grew up in church as I did, and you're probably pretty clear on the gospel, on just the basics of Jesus died, it's the death penalty for the sin that I deserve, and then God welcomes me back. Um, but then there's this sort of implied message that we all are maybe, even in this room, various stages of kind of fuzzy on, which is, after that, like, how much of this is up to God and how much of this is up to me? Do I just kind of keep doing my thing and then just pray whenever, and, or do I need to, like... Try like? Do I need to really try? I probably need to try at least a little bit, right? I mean, you can't just go around murdering people. You know, we're not under the law, but, but kinda. Um, and so, is that yeah? Is that relatable? Anybody else? Not just yeah. Okay, good. So not just me. So when when we come to Christ, this is this is. A, I want to maybe I think this passage helps kind of shine some light on it. When we come to Christ. We're always trusting in him for salvation. We're always trusting in him to pay the penalty. We're always trusting in him to make us alive. Um, but we need to have our feet washed from time to time. In fact, that's why you're here. That's why we're going to have communion together here in a minute. That's why we're uh, hopefully in not just a little bit of community, but in, in a regular conversation with other believers to pray together, to, to speak together. Um, I think a big missing ingredient for me for a long time was that I was doing Christianity in like the Tom T. Hall kind of way. That's a joke for all the 50-plus people in the room. It was just me and Jesus. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. And it just didn't have anything to do with, with other people. Um, other people are prone to letting you down. Other people are prone to stepping on your toes. Other people are prone to misunderstanding you. Um and so I had some close friends early in my walk with the Lord everything was really great and then it was just you know it got weird and painful and maybe a couple of them stopped being Christians at all and and so I was like all right well I'm just going to read the Bible still and pray still and just that'll just be my thing just me and Jesus and you can really only go so far that way you really can you need each other we need each other we you need me and I need you I need all of y'all um we're not designed to follow Christ by ourselves. Jesus said, follow me, to each person one at a time. He called them one at a time. But they followed him in a big group, big old crowd of not just Jesus and the 12, but a whole bunch of other people, too, just wandering around the countryside together um, following Jesus. And that's, that's your life. If you've signed up to be a Christian, that's your life. You don't get to do it just by yourself. Uh, You have the Holy Spirit, you have the Word of God, you have the words of eternal life, but you also have brothers and sisters that you need and who need you. Um, The Holy Spirit has given you, if you're a follower of Christ, some spiritual gift or gifts that we need as a body to be edified. Um, And he has also given you some deficiencies. He's given you not everything that you need, just in yourself. He's given you other people to help build you up, to help bring you into the, the fullness of that sanctification. Um, and so that maybe makes this passage, this, uh, this promise, this command here in, in uh, John 14, 1, um, come a little more into focus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's, it's actually, you probably know this, maybe you don't, the, it's the number one command in Scripture. The thing the Bible tells people to do more than any other thing is don't be afraid. Fear not. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And so that's the, that's, the, uh, that's the trick, that's the passage, that's the thing, that how much of this is up to God and how much of this is up to me? Well, not letting my heart be troubled is a thing that apparently I have to do. Washing each other's feet is a thing that apparently I have to do. The bath, the initial washing, comes from Christ. Uh, unwrapping the grave clothes, that's the thing that we have to do for each other. The, the initial resurrection, that comes from Christ. You can't do that for someone else. But you can not let your heart be troubled. You have the ability and you have the responsibility to say to yourself, I'm not going to let my heart be troubled. I believe in God. I'm going to believe also in Christ. Um, that's, the, that's, that's, that was the next, that's the rest of that verse, verse 1. Um, and it isn't a, a singular thing. If you have been Maybe dealing with anxiety, as many do, as in fact more people in America are doing currently than at any other time in history. Um, Instead of staring at your smartphone for even longer, um, which is not going to, it's not going to, it's the problem, it's part of the problem. Instead of that, say to yourself, I have the ability to not let my heart be troubled. I'm gonna believe in God. I'm gonna believe in what he said. Refocus yourself on the word of God. And don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. It's not up to you to do it alone. If you're feeling anxiety, take it to someone else, take it to another believer. Say, will you pray with me? Um, We need each other, and we're designed to need each other. It's good. It's not weak. It's good. Um, I'll close by looking at this last little section here. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Jesus starts the process. We help each other on the road, as we walk. And then we occasionally stop and wash each other's feet as the dust of the road clings to them. Jesus finishes the process. Remember that. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He is the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. Jesus starts the process, and Jesus is the way, and Jesus is the end. He is the goal. Jesus has a home for you. Jesus has a place. Jesus is... Father's house has many rooms, and one of them has been prepared for you. There's a place at the table for you. And what he wants, more than anything else, is us, each one of us, there with him. What he did, what he went through on the cross, he didn't go through just because he knew, hey, you know, I'll get resurrected eventually, and it'll be fine. He did that for us. It was painful. It was really painful. It was actual pain. He laid down his divinity. He was a a man. He was a God and a man. But as a man, he suffered more than any of us have. As a man, he was tempted in all the same ways that each of us are. And as a man, um, he was raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he did all of that for us. He did all of that for you. You are the joy that was set before him. You are the reason so let's refocus our eyes this morning on Christ. Let's, um, let's come now to the table. We're going to do a little reenactment of the thing that the disciples were doing that night, the Lord's Supper. We do this every week in remembrance of him. So you got a little plastic cup there somewhere by, you, by your seat. There's a piece of bread on one side. There's some juice on the other side. You want to open the bread first because, you know... The juice will spill out. Don't do that. Um, and before we take this supper, everybody look around. It's going to be awkward, but only just two seconds, three seconds. Look around. Look at each other. This is not just a you and Jesus thing. This is an us together thing. We, we need each other. We've been called to walk together, and we need each other. You're in the right place. You're here because Christ called you here. And he's calling each of us to continue to be faithful and to trust in him. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Uh, Do this in remembrance of me. So let's eat together in remembrance of him. And on the juice side, on the grape juice, he took a cup of wine that evening, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood as often as you drink it. Do it in remembrance of me, and so let's drink together. Paul said as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you demonstrate the Lord's resurrection until he comes. And so that's our hope in the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Let me pray again, and then Ken is going to come up and um, close this out. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that it would indeed bear fruit in our lives. Lord, I ask for any here that have been troubled, who who are your, your children, uh, that they would be reminded again that you love them, that you always will love them, that there is no end to the limitless well of your grace for them, and that you have a home for them. You have a place at the table that is waiting, and that you would go to any length, any length, for them to come home and be with you. We trust in you, and we thank you, Father. And I ask that for any here who does not yet know you. Lord, that you would um, convict and reveal the truth of who you are. Father, for each of us, uh, we ask that you will just keep our eyes focused on Jesus as we walk together. In his name we pray. Amen.